Okay, welcome to the CSA podcast. I have another edition today of the Security Leader Interview Series. I've got Jeff Husey of Temper. So Jeff's background is near and dear to my heart. He is a serial entrepreneur, much like myself, but he's done a lot of different things. He's been a founder and co-founder of numerous companies, one of which is very well known, F5 Networks. He is a professional board member, uh, both not-for-profit and for-profit businesses, and we'll talk a little bit about that. He's a speaker. He is a mountain climber. He's a father. He's a winemaker. He's a lover of all things tech. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, Derek. Nice to be here. All right. Well, as I always say, uh, every you know superhero has a backstory, and in this modern age, I think people that are addressing cybersecurity issues uh, head-on are a kind of superhero. So I like to always start with people's people's backstory. Let's talk about where, you know, where Jeff came from. Where'd Jeff grow up? Well, Jeff grew up in a little town just north of Seattle called Everett, Washington. And I got out of there as quickly as possible and moved to the big city where I went to undergraduate school and then actually got a graduate degree at the University of Washington. Then have lived here my entire life. When I talk to folks sometimes, and, and or my kids, I'll say, look, you can either decide where you're going to live or what you're going to do. What you're going to do will drag you all over the world. But if you decide where you're going to live, you're going to have to be really intentional about what you do, and you're going to have to think about that progression as it might, may occur in your, your career. So I've done a bunch of different things that are not necessarily connected um, I've been told on countless occasions that I'm basically unemployable, so I need to, um, you know, create my own jobs. And that's the good thing about being the CEO. You can define your commute. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've, I've been subject to that same description as kind of being uh, unemployable. Uh, I, re- I relate to that, you know, that comment. So um, early on, uh, if you go back to childhood, any any technology in first impressions or nexus in your life, you know, that you remember like, Ooh, this set me on a certain path. Yeah. I've always loved tech and comms. I had a ham radio license when I was 11 years old. Just love listening to people and sending Morse code. And I just loved technology. Um, very early on in the computer business I was building one of those um, Altair computers that um, Gates and Allen wrote some software for. And then I guess it's another indication of my early adopterhood of technology. I had the dubious distinction of being one of the thousand first people to have ever purchased a Macintosh back in 1984. So that was, um, yeah, I love tech. Now, tell me you bought also bought a thousand shares of Apple at the same time. Now, that was not the time to buy Apple. The time to buy Apple was in 2003. Although I think if you bought them, it, it still would have worked out pretty well. It would have worked out just fine. <laughs> I, you know, I'm curious. I know that you've got uh, a very broad, uh, you know, over the years, technological, you know, let's, let's kind of talk about a little bit of the career path before we get into, you know, where you are today. W- what do you do? You know, straight out of school. I know you you studied finance, right? I think if I remember right. Finance. And so the first job I had out of college was actually a municipal bond trader. So that's what I did back in the, you know, back in the day, mid 80s, you know, bonfire of the vanities. Um, 
circa. Um, that was a pretty cool thing to be doing. And um, here in the Northwest were some municipal bonds that had the dubious distinction of being the first massive municipal default in history, Washington Public Power Supply System. And right out of school, I got a job at a brokerage firm and I was very quickly moved into making live markets in those bonds. So I did that for a number of years. You know, consistent with the story, um, I really loved the technology, specifically the quote machines and so forth. Because back in the day, that was pre-internet. And so people would have to pay thousands of dollars a month for those, for those screens that would disseminate prices. And I thought that was really interesting. And so I moved from trading into Infotech. And so spent so several crossover and you never yeah. you didn't leave, I think if I'm mistaken, not mistaken, you, you cross over into tech and then you you stay in that. Right. So that that's what I was doing. And back to my initial com comment about, you know, deciding where you're gonna live or what you're gonna do. So I went into Infotech and here I was based in Seattle selling quote machines. And you can for those of you who don't know what a quote machine is, and that might be a lot of people on this. You can imagine if you've ever seen that movie Wall Street, where Gordon Gecko is sitting in his um, greed is office. good, greed is good, and looking at those screens. Those are the screens that I sold. And what was interesting back in those times was that I lived in Seattle, and my sales territory was basically west of Chicago, north of LA, and. So in big financial centers like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles, there would be trading floors with hundreds of people. And so it would take one primary communications link, typically at least T1, to connect from a New York data center to that trading floor. But in my territory, it was more like 10 guys in a spot and then 20 branch offices with two. And so I had to figure out how to, you know, network those and not have an off branch office with two folks having a, you know, a 56K or a T1 home run back to a data center in L.A. or New York. And so that forced me to learn a lot about networking technologies and packet switching and so forth, which was coming along. Just coming into being at that point in time. And so I had some customers who were the first brokerage firms in the country to have front and back office networks on frame relay. And that got me fired. So, <laughs> so from there, um, from there, I um, had a brief stint doing some investment banking. And while I was there, decided to start my first company and that company, um, and with that company, I went out and bought some cascade switches and built the first frame relay network between the U.S. West Coast, Hawaii, and Guam, and became the first internet service provider in Honolulu. That was like in 1994. Just as, just as you know, the internet was starting to explode. I mean, Netscape has, had just um, shipped, you know, the Mosaic browser. People traffic on the public network was growing 90 or basically doubling every 90 days. And I was like, okay, that was um, that was the start of it. And so, so Jeff, do you think this internet internet thing is going to catch on? 
Yeah, I think it might. I thought it might back then. And is and that F five? Or, or no, no, no. That's that's is that Pacific Comlink you're talking about? Yeah, I called it Pacific Comlink, and I sold that, and then was looking for my next thing to do, and realized what was going on in the internet was really interesting because traffic was doubling every 90 days on the public network. And so what happened was my friends who were building websites, they would go out and spend $5,000, which is all they had, on a Spark 5 that could service maybe 100 simultaneous users. And then really only practically serviced about 80 because at 90 users, it was half as fast, and at 100 users, it was dead. And so the next step was, oh, if I want to serve 200 simultaneous users, I get to buy a Spark 20, and that's 25K. It was 2X performance, 5X price. And so I was like, wow, somebody should build a load balancer. And no one had. And so Community rings. I, wrote the, I wrote the business plan late 1995. We launched F5 in February 96. Cisco copied us at the end of 1996, and the rest is history. Awesome. I must admit, I, I was starting my first company in 1997, and so a company like F5 were the kinds of companies I was looking at and, and saying, wow, that's pretty amazing. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to, to have uh, someone like you on the show now today. Yeah, that, I mean, it was, that was a wild, wild ride. I bet. I bet. I remember reading reading at the time of various various things. So it's networking, it's load balancing, it's all these sort of network fundamentals. I'm curious. I'm supposing security is part of the conversation even back then, but where does it become um, a more taking more of your mind share, more of your interest about how that how that works? What was interesting is that um, you know even in 1998, 1999 the FIS flagship product, Big IP, was most of a firewall. And what it did, because unlike all the other components in the network, which like the protocol we all use, TCP IP, is default allow, you know, connect to the network and connect with anything else that's attached to it, the load balancer was a default deny. So you plug the load balancer in and nothing gets through unless it's provisioned. And so I used to characterize Big IP as basically nine thirteenths of a firewall because back then there were like a dozen or 12, 12 or 13 things that firewalls did and nothing more. And, and we did most of it. That was kind of my initial foray into security. Later on, I was, you know, at the ground floor of, a company called Lockdown, which was the first company to bring to market an intrusion prevention system, IPS, IDS. Mm -hmm. And then 2014, I'd kind of been semi-retired for a decade and popped my head up and it's like, wow, how can, how can these industrial networks be hacked? There's supposed to be air gap. Somebody needs to fix that problem because that is a big problem. Well, just put all the air gaps back, right? I mean, isn't right. that the reason? It was, just just an, it was an air gap. It was, well, how do you, I mean, 
everybody thought that the internet was such a big deal and it was a big deal, but it was not the first network that was ever invented. I mean, networks have been around for decades. They just didn't all talk TCP IP. They might talk X25, they might talk serial protocol, they might talk a lot of different things, just not TCP IP. And so when TCP IP you know, became the accidental backbone of global commerce and communication because of the explosion of the internet, that's when the security paradigm changed because you know back then it wasn't it wasn't such a big thing but when you start having these production networks interconnected or commingled with information networks you open pandora's box certainly yeah and that and that's the space we're in so we're going to come back to to that for sure Let's just tease out a few more things maybe from the years that you just described. Um, I always like to ask guests on the show if there's any standout individuals that you look back and say, boy, the advice or mentorship, whatever word you want to use, you know, that person was pretty instrumental. We know we have listeners to the show and members of CSA who are earlier in their career or looking to make a change. They might not be young people. They might be just people saying, I'm going to go in a new direction or they're coming out of the military and they want to go into this area, this idea of, of security. Uh, they know cybersecurity maybe at a high level is a good opportunity, uh, but they sometimes wander into some of our meetings or they're they're tasked by their uh, by their their employer. You know, go go get savvy on some cybersecurity. We, you know, I've met engineers, you know, in our circles who are definitely no engineering, but don't know anything about this. And they're like, oh, I've been tasked to kind of get savvy on cybersecurity. So they're making career choices. You know, where do I learn? Who do I network with? What, do I need the certification? Do I need credentials? Do I got to go back to school? You know, and everybody's got different opinions on this. So that's kind of two questions, I guess. Are there people that were instrumental in your early years, any kind of mentors or advisors? And were there decisions you made, investments you made in time or energy or money that end up ended up, you know, helping advance, you know, where your, your own knowledge and where you, you know, supporting where you ended up. Yeah, definitely. To be honest, that person was my dad. My dad was a teacher and a librarian, and he had a very particular worldview, which was, I would ask him a question and he would say, well, figure it out, do it yourself. Don't come to me for the answers. You know the answers. Oh, and here's this library. Have a look. And so he had basically this very well-honed Socratic method. I would call him up, you know, bitching and moaning about my technical problem or my personal problem or this or that. And he would just basically start probing me with questions. And, and he said, oh, hey, you just answered your own question. Or... Why don't you go over here and check out these resources and get some help? But it was really that um, that was a formative experience that um, helped me a great deal. I didn't you wouldn't naturally expect that, but it helped. It was very helpful to me because here I was a guy with a primarily financial background going into technology and and having a rapidly growing team of technologists and. I would ask questions and it became obvious to me that I wasn't always getting precisely the right answer or the answer. And, you know, cause people tell you sometimes what you want to hear. Yeah. Especially if you're the CEO. And so what I did was actually, okay, I need to learn about this at a very, very granular level. 
just knowing the lexicon and the buzzwords is insufficient. I actually need to know how the plumbing works. And so I went out and bought Stevens TCPIP Illustrated Volumes 1 and 2 and read them cover to cover five times. So I actually know how this stuff works. And then I read books about managing dev teams and networking, physically got boxes out, plugged them in, configured all the, the components of the, of the network chain to make an end-to-end -end connection. So I actually knew how, I had to force myself to learn how the plumbing worked in order to um, be effective in my role. And that leads me to the second um, part of your question, which are, you know, what are the things that I did to enhance my odds of having a successful outcome, which was really, really focusing on understanding the craft. So understanding all the components of the puzzle and being able to understand when people are saying correct things or not. Because very often in technology, you'll have people who have some mastery of the lexicon and they'll come in and they'll say, you know, gobbledygook, 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 and, and I'm right. And you might be sitting there scratching your head. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. But unless you know, then that's the end of the story. And so I learned that. Machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence to your cloud-based model. And we'll get that Purdue model thing going in there too. And you should be good to go. <laughs> you should be good to go. But how are you going to plug that in, Derek? What's going to go where? Yeah. If you get into a, a situation like that, I have a very high standard when I'm talking to customers. I don't want to waste their time. I want to communicate our value proposition as quickly as possible and demonstrate that we can solve their issues. But at the same time, I don't want to ever mislead them or tell them something that isn't true. And so it's really important to be able to listen to someone, describe their problem, and have a sufficient amount of domain expertise to contextualize um, their description of the problem and come back with a solution. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I think there's some real nuggets there, Jeff, this idea of, of digging in, you know, the resources, whether it's a book or a course or whatever, but digging in and getting right down to the material, fundamental building blocks levels of whatever it is that you're that, that you're studying. And there have been people on the show that have suggested that, uh, you know, near and near to your heart, that understanding networking, you know, before you get into all these kind of cl cloud and machine learning and AI and all these things that could be very new cutting edge areas to gain expertise, but under, just understanding all how these things communicate, fundamentally how they communicate is a building block to anything you might do, you know, to secure any of these, any of these systems. And it sounds like you just said, I'm going to pull that onion apart and go, go right down to the center of it. Right. And it remains the dirty little secret of so many things. It's like cloud computing. What's the fundamental component to cloud computing? Networks. No such thing as a cloud without a network. So that's why, you know, early, actually earlier in our discussion, we, I made sure I was clear in saying I'm a networking guy before I'm a cybersecurity guy. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and like you and I talked about, I mean, that's, you know, I think for CSA's perspective, our organization, it's like we all have got a part to play and we've all got we different constituents and stakeholders have a lot to learn from others. And that's mm -hmm. one of the that's one of the biggest things we can accomplish as a 
not-for-profit trade associations say, bring your ego down and learn from those guys, you know, who might not wear a hard hat. Although, hey, you know, you know this, uh, this amazing amount over here about, you know, information technology or cybersecurity, but you don't know safety. And this is a big, big deal over here. Or you don't know that this plant is not going down other than November 6th for six hours and there's no rebooting in between. You know, everybody has something to learn when you talk about applying, you know, what we need to do, applying the different technologies and solutions to to these environments. And that's I think that's our biggest mission is get people talking. And so I, I liked your perspective that you're coming from just fundamental understanding of networking. We certainly have people who really have major stakeholders in the in operating technology you know, environments that don't necessarily understand that. They know some some things that are super important. They're like, oh, I can hear that noise. The plant's not in good shape, you know, and that's something you yeah. only learn through an amazing fundamental, you know, experience of, of learning in those environments. But I, I want to get bridges built between everybody. I think that's, that's so I, I, I'm glad you're coming from a bit of a different environment than some, than some people who've been on the show so far. So um, I think that's, I think that's helpful and useful. Let's talk about, about this company. And you, like you said, at the, at the beginning of uh, of Tempered, it was around this idea. Oh, I mean, you, I, I think either I don't know if it was day one origin, but you're saying, hey, these these traditionally air gap networks aren't. And is that at the fundamental beginning of it, or is there a start story and then you recognize that that aspect? Well, and say, oh, I mean, it, it was really twofold. It was, and that was somebody needs to figure out how to make these networks that used to be completely private, but now aren't and are intermingled with other things or cloud or what have you, private once again. And that's been our mission since the get-go. And really what the mission is, is to address the fundamental and fatal flaw that exists in TCPIP, which is back in the day, at the infancy of the internet, a guy named Vince Cerf, who was a researcher at Stanford, would ring up his buddy Len Kleinworth, a researcher at UCLA, and they would exchange pleasantries on the phone. Then they would set their handsets on analog coupled modems where their computers, which were the size of office buildings through routers, the size of refrigerators, would negotiate a very slow session. That was the Internet. Security was a voice print and nothing moved. Now we carry supercomputers around in our pockets everywhere we go. The world has changed. The protocol hasn't. Because of that paradigm, that voice print, nothing moved, there was no thought to security. Why do you need to secure it? I mean, I'm calling somebody I know. I've met him in person, you know? But, and so what they did was they used the IP address as both locator and identifier. Bad idea. It created a $100 billion annual security business, but it's a bad idea. Yeah. And so finally, people began to get onto this, you know, say 1999, 2000, and work on this protocol called the Host Identity Protocol began. That was 20 years ago. Um, it was issued at an RFC in 2015, but Tempered is the first company to commercialize a networking solution based on the Host Identity Protocol. What the Host Identity Protocol does is fix the fatal flaw that exists in TCPIP. We use the existing network and extend its useful life significantly for what it was originally intended to, which is to locate hosts and provide data transport between them. What we do then is add another layer. And that layer is a layer where all policy is created and managed based upon unique cryptographic identities 
of those endpoints. What's magic about the protocol and this approach is that we can create truly private networks that are invisible to threats, whether those threats are external or internal to the organization, and, and span you know, all, the, at, all the endpoints and attributes of a typically large corporate hybrid network. So a connection in AWS, a connection in Azure, a connection in a colo data center, a, a connection you know, on-prem, connection to cell phones, remote users, physical infrastructure, all of those things connected, complete security, and no other, and no other security apparatus is required. And so that's a re- that product now is shipping. It sounds like science fiction, but we've deployed it in, in you know, hundreds of places, thousands and tens of thousands of endpoints worldwide. And it really is, you know, changing people's view of how to do networking securely and their lives because it massively increases their, their efficiency. We like to call it a hyper secure network. Yeah. Okay. That, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. These networks and the, the fundamental architecture issue going back to, to original design, right. And security, I've, I've talked, I've talked about this on stages. Like it was just wasn't part of the design, wasn't part of the thought process. And now we're bolting on. And so um, companies like yours are at that forefront of like, okay, well, let's fun, let's look back at the the basic architecture of this and what do we need to do, right? Makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It is a challenge to take something that's so ubiquitous and add security to it. <laughs> yes, it is. It has created a career path for uh, for some of us, but but as far as a societal issue, it's a it's a biggie. There's no no doubt about it. Talk a little bit. I'm always curious too. There'll be colleagues and culture both at, 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 at Tempered, but maybe before that too. Uh, um, what is what is that? What's your story or experience has been with key you know key other people? You you use the word co-founder, um, and so obviously there's there's other that thing kind of indicates there's other co-founder or co-founders depending uh, on the story. So what has been your experience of of colleagues? I mean, I think again looking at CSA's mission, getting people to work together. You've clearly been working with other people. I know you know on a fundamental you know raw level building things. Right, culture is really important. It's my belief that the CEO gets really to do two things specifically that only the CEO gets to do, and that is define and um, foster a culture and then decide where the office is going to be located and, by extension, your commute. That's not even that important anymore because we all work in our bedrooms. But culture has always been really important to me, and because I work a lot, I mean, everybody in a venture back scenario works a lot. And it's really important to me to like the people I work with. And so we've got a very high bar. We've got a very rigorous process that we use when we're recruiting people to make sure that they're technically capable of doing the role and that they're culturally, they're, they're culturally appropriate and can fit in with how we both work and play. And so I've got a few very simple rules um, that help me define culture. And one is um, minimize politics and maximize ideas. So politics, you'll ask a lot of people what constitutes corporate politics and they'll give you a kind of a vague answer. Well, I can't really tell you. I just know it when I see it. (laughs) That's a famous line. (laughs) Right. I think corporate culture is especially in I'm really sensitive about not imposing positional authority 
which means that even though I'm the CEO, I don't have the right to walk into to dev or or to walk into sales or to walk into marketing and tell them what to do. Because if I did, I, I mean, that'd be like telling my kid to do something. And when he asks why, because I'm your dad, that doesn't work with kids and it doesn't work with um, seasoned professionals. And so it's try very, very hard not to impose positional authority. And the other thing is to not substitute relationship for performance, which means that everybody has to do their job and get along with their peers, not just slack and say, we're friends and I'm not, I'm going to let that one go. So that, and then we want to maximize ideas in this environment. I've got lots and lots of folks with very, very deep domain expertise. They know the networking stack and they know networking product and they know how to implement solutions in the real world as well as anybody in the field. But that doesn't mean that they're the only place that ideas can come from. You know, sometimes ideas can come from a keen sense of the obvious, as I like to characterize it. And the example I use when I'm when I'm telling people about the culture is, okay, there's this urban fable about um, the Dumbarton Bridge and the tunnel and and this semi getting stuck and all these aid workers um, coming to the rescue of the semi and they're there for hours. And this kid who's sitting in the car at the front of the line with his mom gets out, looks, says, Hey mom, why don't they just let the air out of the tires? It's like, (laughs) that's the keen sense of the obvious. And all these people with their deep domain expertise and decades of experience, it didn't occur to them. So that that's a little vignette on, you know, tempered culture. That was F5 culture at, at the beginning. And that culture is something that people enjoy and it persists over time. It stood the test of time. That's great. I love that story. Um, that story is interesting uh, as a, you know, as a reference to culture, but also just a reference to, uh, to this problem space we're tackling, right? Yeah. You know, the new perspectives. I think it makes, it supports, I love it. I'm going to use that story because it supports my argument about what our mission is, which is bringing people together and saying, hey, somebody else may recognize to just let the air out of your tires. You may be an expert on the whole truck, the car, the engine, and its fuel system. Right. They may recognize that just letting the air out of the tires would solve the problem you're currently in. So I love it. I love it. That's great. Um, so, uh, you know, go back. Uh, I was, you know, as we near the end of these interviews, is there any advice to think about this career path that you went on? Uh, any advice you'd give somebody or you'd give a younger you if you're going back and talking to Jeff, uh, you know, 20 years ago, what would you tell Jeff? And or what would you tell people today, like things they might choose to do that to to benefit themselves in the cybersecurity you know, career or industry area? Well, that's a pretty broad question, Derek. So I'll just cherry pick a couple of things and reiterate the point I made earlier about mastering your craft, becoming an expert in your domain. Really important. And then maintaining that level of expertise by keeping up. I think that's hugely important. The other thing is patience. Things take longer than particularly people in their youth, like myself, would ever anticipate. And so the power of persisting over time and, you know, letting the eighth wonder of the world compound interest in its various forms apply to your efforts is massively important. So often someone will start something and then maybe they'll just want a quick sale or a quick exit. With F5 and and others, 
the Apple example that you cited earlier on, you know, it's painful at times, you know, to own things for a long time, but it takes a long time for businesses and ideas and new ways of doing things to really achieve widespread acceptance. But when you do, when that happens, the, the rewards are quite remarkable. Know your craft, be patient, persist. Great nugget right there. That, that is uh, some distillation of a, a number of things in just a few very significant words uh, that anybody, I think, can apply, right? I mean, even there's, there's probably a little bit of a warning bell there to say some people who may, may not have been paying attention or digging deep in and getting away from the fundamental changes in their industry, right. they could redig in a little bit uh, yeah. and, and might benefit from that, depending, especially depending on what their, what their role is and what they're trying to get done. Okay. What, what excites you about the future? What are you looking uh, looking out beyond the horizon? Is there anything that you're you're looking at personally or professionally and just say, "Wow, that's that's a fascinating area," or "That's an area that's really going to usher in some some major changes." I'm remain very very excited about this solution that we've brought to market, the Airwall, and how it can not only be a very successful business and get widespread acceptance, but it also solves some incredibly acute problems that we face at large corporate and even the national level. It's no secret to you and your listeners that, you know, advanced persistent threats exist in most major government and corporate organizations. And it's just, there's a lot of bad, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. And to the extent that we can um, assist people in minimizing that, through our solution, that's exciting to me and motivating and gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, that you know that answers another question I didn't ask you, which is you've done a lot of different things and you could maybe uh, be resting up somewhere and, and soaking in the rays, but you're 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 working your butt off at a you know like you said as a venture back uh, entity. I relate to that. I know that that is a, a you know it's got a huge burden of uh, execution. And right. so that's part of, that must be part of the reason you're doing it is you, you, you're excited about what you're doing. And it, it, it does, like you said, it gets you up in the morning. I think that's a relevant yeah. thing for anybody, right? What gets you up in the morning? And if something isn't getting you up in the morning, you might want, you know, that, might be a, that might be an indication to, to look at some sort of change. Yeah, it gets me out of bed in the morning with my hair on fire. <laughs> yeah. Any cutting edge uh, areas of, of future technology or technology that's emerging now that you think is going to be, you know, it's worth maybe somebody's if they wanted to gain some extra expertise and be 10 years from now or five years from now be really super valuable because they were they were kind of investing ahead of the curve. You know, would you point them in any particular direction? Yeah, I would say that here's one of my my little sound bites, quips, as it were, that um, way early in my career, I was interviewing for another job. And for and it was a job that at the time I was highly evolved for. I was sitting in this guy's office and. He said, okay, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah, when do I start? And, and he said, oh, well, I don't think we're going to hire you because you don't have enough experience. And my response to that was, well, experience is a great thing for doing it the old way. And he dismissed me with his hand. That'll be all. He was wrong. I'm right. Experience is a great thing for doing it the old way. And right now in our industry, there's a lot of old ways that aren't working. And I just want to encourage all of your listeners to really not necessarily embrace every new thing that comes their way, but really consider the possibility that how it's been done for the last 30 years 
is not going to work for the next 30. And there's another way to do it. I share that belief system. I mean, that's probably at the heart of entrepreneurialism, but uh, but it is applicable to, to, to people who are in corporations is challenge themselves to think about, well, maybe we could go about right. this differently. Mm-hmm. Run those exercises in wargaming and say, hey, everything's fair game. Don't shoot it down just right. because Johnny or Susie brings it up and says, hey, could we do it this way? Think about it first. <laughs> maybe right. that's a good idea that could change, you know, change the world. Okay. Any, any, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're at the end of our, our time. Um, any other thoughts you'd like to share um, with, uh, you know, with our listeners? Anything, any parting, parting comments? Since your audience um, is members, are members of the Cybersecurity for Control Systems group, I would encourage everyone to bring back the air gap. We can help you. Okay. So this is my favorite part of the show when we end by borrowing something from another show. So I have been a longtime fan of Inside the Actor's Studio that has run for decades on a number of networks around the world. Its longtime host, James Lipton, has unfortunately passed. Uh, He was a unique individual, and he always had the same interview process, and he ended all of his interviews with the same questionnaire, the Pavot questionnaire, which he borrowed from a French show before uh, his show had started. Mm -hmm. So I feel um, good that I'm I'm, uh, tipping my hat to those shows and borrowing the same questionnaire Kind of a fun way to end the interview. If you're up for it, uh, we'll go, Jeff. Go for it. Okay. What is your favorite word? Hmm. Dad. What is your least favorite word? Pivot. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Big ideas. What turns you off? Closed minds. What is your favorite curse word, if you have one and are willing to share? Yeah, it starts with an F and it ends with a bomb. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of a jet engine spooling up. What sound or noise do you hate? My wife crying. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Rock star. What profession would you not like to do? Anything that sells their time by the minute, like an accountant, lawyer, or doctor. Just not got a bunch of professions. Um, and last, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well done, my good and faithful son. All right. Thank you, Jeff Husey, CEO, co-founder and president of Tempered. Thank you for being on the CSA podcast. Thanks for having me, Derek. It's been great.